Thanks a lot. You can be seated. Hey, before I jump in, um, you know, you probably saw that we've started remodeling the hallway out there. It's so cool, and this is just like the culmination of your sacrificial giving, uh, a great team of volunteers who are doing uh, so much of this work for free, tremendous contractors, people that have designed and are overseeing the project, and um, I'm just so thrilled that this, this has been like one of my milestones since I took the lead pastor position here a little over four years ago. But I, if you got my email, uh, and if you remember last week, I started talking about how we have a great opportunity in front of us. And uh, because we have connected with a contractor uh, that has given us airport quality carpet at their cost, we have an opportunity to carpet this whole building. And it's going to cost $130,000 more than we have collected. Now, some of you, just by me mentioning that, have given already. Uh, somebody gave $10,000 to that last week. And I'm so grateful for, for those of you that love this church like that and want to step up our game. Um, but I, if you're thinking about giving, I don't want you to give yet. And between now and September 1st, I want you to just start praying and thinking and talking if you're a family and asking, God, what, what do you want us to do? What do you want me to do? And I'm calling this Get It Done Sunday. I'm a get it done kind of person. If you've been around me, I like to get it done. Get her done. But uh, because we have this opportunity, I'm asking you to pray between now and September 1st about what God would have you to do to get it done. The reason why I don't want you to give all now is I want you to think about it and I want you to pray because, um, you know, if you just react, you might overgive. You might put yourself in debt in a way that God doesn't intend, and nobody wants that. But you might undershoot, too. And what seems like a big number to you, or to others, might not be a big number to you. And we promise you, you have our guarantee, as we've always said. It's like what you designate uh, to the capital improvement fund, it goes entirely to that. So would you just pray and consider that? That's all I'm asking you to do. And then we'll see how far we get. And we'll go as far as we can go beginning September 1st. So thanks for that little indulging me in that little infomercial. Let's talk about justice. Okay? You know, in 1994, it only took a mere 100 days for Hutu extremists to slaughter 800,000 Tutsis. In 2014, 19 Yazidi women were burned alive in cages because they would not have sex with the terrorists. From 1882 to 1968, in this country, 3,446 African Americans were lynched. And only a handful of those were prosecuted. And even fewer were convicted. On average, around the world, 90,000 Christians are martyred each year. These people did not deserve death, and their families certainly, and their loved ones, did not deserve such grief. It's not fair. Have you ever said those words? It's not fair. How old were you when you first learned 
that the world isn't fair or to use that phrase, it's not fair. At first, it might be because your brother took your toy. But later in life, the issues got more serious. It might have been a racial slur. It could have been a drug dealer that destroyed your sister's life. It could be that you got dumped in your marriage after years and years of faithfulness. It could be a corporation that cheesed you out of a fair severance. And it could have been that a loved one of yours was killed by a drunk driver and they got a mere slap on their wrist. And you thought to yourself, it's not fair. When we face these situations of unfairness, we question God, we blame God, and sometimes we even abandon God. If you've ever said it's not fair, I want to assure you you're not the first. The psalmist said in Psalm 82:2, How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? In Psalm 119:84, How long must your servant wait? When will you punish my persecutors? And in Psalm 6:3, the psalmist wrote, My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord? How long? Well, not forever. We've been in a series that we've called I Promise, and we've just been looking at the promises of God. Things that people who will rely upon God can stand upon. And we're, this last promise, before uh, so we wrap up this series and go on to uh, something else next week, is this. God's promise is this. I promise justice will prevail. I promise justice will prevail, and this comes from the Apostle Paul's words in Acts 17.31 when he said, God has set a day when he will judge the world. You know, the Apostle Paul said this when he was teaching and reasoning with people in Athens. And when he said that God has set a day, that is like God put it on his calendar. You might have a digital calendar and you put something on there. It's like that's what it means to set a day. That's what God did. And he added everybody who's ever been born to the invitee list. Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven. And he gave a much clearer and more vivid description of hell than he ever did of heaven. And the Bible often references judgment in connection with justice. Here in your notes, I've already given you, uh, these are all filled in, but like three kind of common passages that talk about God's judgment. The first one is the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. And in this parable, Jesus talks about how the world, the nations will be judged before God from all corners of the earth. And it, it doesn't matter where you came from, The way Jesus described it in this story is he se it's a separation of sheep and goats. Now, some scholars say, well, that's just a parable, but in the end, it doesn't really matter. Jesus often used stories to describe realities. 
The second thing, uh, judgment I've listed is the Bema Seat of Christ found in 2 Corinthians 5.10. And the Bema Seat is a judgment seat. And the picture there is Jesus as the king sits on the throne. And we stand before him to receive what is due based on what we did, whether good or bad. And then the last one I've noted is called the Great White Throne Judgment, and that's in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. And this is uh, John's uh, revelation of the dreadful judgment that will happen at the end of all humanity. And, and, and that judgment will occur regardless of our status here on earth. The great and small will stand before God, and they will be judged for their deeds done. And all those whose names are not found in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire. Now, do we know exactly how the judgment will go and like the, the entire timeline? Some, some people think that we do. I personally don't think that we know everything. It's, it's sort of like, you know, we're, taught, we're trying to get a picture of what will happen and we've never been there. It's like, is, is heaven... Um, you know, really, uh, streets of gold and pearly gates. This is a way of describing it. I know that the first church camp I went to, the, uh, the pastor, the preacher, described the judgment that we would face at the end of life like um, we, would all, we, we would be kind of like sectioned out and stand before everyone in the world and they would show a videotape of our lives. And I... And now, looking back on that, I know that that's bogus. Uh, you know, we've moved on from videotape, first of all, right? <laughs> so it'll be digital, right? But it's going to be super boring. I mean, can you imagine waiting in that line? And there's only like a few juicy moments in everybody's life, right? So I just can't picture it being like that. So, you know, Christians disagree on how the judgment will go and um, the individual specifics of it. But one thing we do know is that there will be a judgment. That there will be justice for he has set a day when he will judge the world. God promised this. And, and in this same conversation that Paul has with the Athenians, he says that the resurrection is a guarantee that this justice will occur. In Acts 17, 31, he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So we often think of the resurrection as being proof of Jesus was the Son of God, that he is the Son of God, that uh, he overcame death, and his redemption counts for all those who will receive him. But Paul here also notes that the resurrection is proof that there will be justice in the world. Now, I know I'm talking about an unpopular subject here. So it's not that we have a parking problem and I want to thin the crowd or anything, okay? But when we talk about judgment day, I know that that's an unpopular term. Uh, we don't really like to think about a day of reckoning, but I want you to consider a couple thoughts. First of all, it's impossible to have justice without judgment. It's impossible. We spurn judgment, but we value justice, and yet the latter is impossible without the former. There are people who say, I just can't believe in a God who judges. 
And my question is, how can you believe in a God who doesn't? You see, if there is no judgment, why wouldn't you cheat? If there is no judgment, why wouldn't you lie? There is no judgment. If I have the power to do so, why wouldn't I take all of your resources, whether you're an individual or, or a nation? And if there is no judgment, why wouldn't I raise myself up by pushing you down? If there is no judgment, will there be no accountability for those that take life indiscriminately? whether a mom or a dad or in a mass shooting. I also want you to think about that God's judgment is actually proof of his love. God's judgment is proof of his love. You discipline your children because you love them. Proverbs says that a parent who loves their child does discipline their child. Is it, is it really more loving to say that our actions don't matter? Should we apply that today to Hitler or a terrorist or a racist or a mass shooter? Now, I'm going to give you a little personal opinion alert here, okay? So I'm like, I'm going to move. This is, this, is, this is just my thoughts. But I, I think that discomfort with the idea of God's judgment is really a first world problem. The reason I say that is it's easy in a comfortable, safe world where you have a nice neighborhood and good schools and you have water and you have food and you have comfort and you have plenty of money um, to be distanced from the true injustices of the world. I'm going to talk about that. And I think that that contributes to our lack of belief in hell. I have friends that say, I, I don't believe in hell. And yet to, to say that is really to say that there will be no accounting in the day ever for the injustices in the world. Sometimes I feel like our disbelief in hell is more about our privileged life than it is sound theology. If you think the world is just, then think about a family who, who is wasting away in a refugee camp somewhere in the world. Think about the five million Syrians who have been displaced, five million displaced from their home under threat, loved ones murdered, tortured, Think about the people that fled civil war in Somalia. Over 250,000 of them are currently in a refugee complex in Kenya. That's their life. The world is not just. And we don't have to like go to the big national news. We can just look right here. Look around. Think about child who's raised in an inner city that has no decent school within an hour and lives in an unsafe neighborhood. Think about 
the sex abuse and the human trafficking that is going on in this country. And think about the many Christians around this world that are longing for God's justice to be served. Maybe we're uncomfortable with the idea of justice because we've just seen it done badly. But I can assure you that God's judgment will be perfectly just. Psalm 33, 5 says that the Lord loves righteousness and justice. And so we can be assured that whatever the judgment is of the world, whatever, whatever accountability each of us has before God, it will be righteous and just. So what do we do with that thought? If God is so committed to justice, and by the way, I just challenge you, like do, do a word search of justice through the Old and New Testament, and you will find that this is a common theme for God throughout the ages. But what do we do if God is so committed to that, and he's warning us of our lack of justice so often, and guaranteeing that there will be justice even through the resurrection. If God cares about it that much, what do we do with it? Do we just like say, well, buckle up and let's just wait for God to make everything right? Wait until judgment day? I think that there are really two, th two thoughts that I'd like to share with you. I think that God's commitment to justice prompts in us. This promise prompts something in us. Number one, God's promise of justice calls for healthy introspection and likely repentance. Healthy introspection and, and likely repentance. When we think about justice, we should begin by thinking about ourselves. You know, Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 17, it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. Be honest. As I've been talking about justice throughout this message, have you really been thinking about the other? Thinking about the other people who God is bringing justice to? Peter says that justice has to begin here in the house of God, the family of God with the church. And you know, we, we're living current history where the church has covered up injustices done to their own people, to children in many cases. It's reprehensible to think that the church won't deal with their own business. Let justice, let judgment begin with the family of God. And we don't just have to pick on some large organization or something uh, you know, kind of like just out there in a big way, we, we can look at our own lives. I can look at preachers, myself. How often have pastors been in the news who inflicted judgment and justice on their people, and when it came time for them, they rejected it? How often are we as individuals... Um, thinking about like the people that really God needs to bring justice on when if the world is unjust, can, can we not just admit that there might be some injustice in us as well? 
When I said healthy introspection, I, I meant that. That, was, that wasn't just like an extra word to throw in there. I th- you know, the, the idea here isn't to place guilt and fear and shame on us, but, is, but just to recognize that there's some engagement on our part to look for injustice in our own lives. And we're covered by the grace of God. We will stand before God. I'm going to talk about that in just a couple minutes here. And we know that we have Jesus Christ as our advocate. We are forgiven of our sins. But every indication in the scripture is that there will be, we will give an account for how we lived our lives. And one of the things that we will give an account for is justice because it's such a common theme in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And in another place, in his first letter, Paul talks about um, like our lives are kind of built upon the foundation of Christ and his redemptive work, but it's like we're, we're constructing something, a building, and it will be tested in the end. In 1 Corinthians 3.13, there's going to be a time of testing at the judgment day to see what kind of work each builder has done. And everyone's work will be put through the fire to see whether or not it, it keeps its value. If the work survives the fire, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builders themselves will be saved, but like someone escaping through a wall of flames. It's like there'll be some, I mean, I don't think it's specifically like this is a picture, but like there'll be some test or evaluation of what, what our lives amounted to. And there are some things that we're investing our time and energy in that are of not, they're just not of lasting value. And some things are more valuable and more important. And that's why in this promise that we've noted from Acts 17, this is attached with it in the verse before it, in Acts 17:30, God commands all people everywhere to repent. That is, there, with the knowledge that there's an accountability of our lives, when we see that we're wasting our lives or we've become self-interested, so many distractions, I should repent. That's a good word. That means to change your mind, to kind of be, you know, knock back on your heels and go, you know, that behavior has to change. That belief has to change. That philosophy has to change. We'll stand before God, and, and it's not just, you know, like, here's your list of bad things you did wrong. We'll also be rewarded, and I want you to hear that because that's part of justice. In Hebrews 6.10, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help him. When we stand before God, God is going to applaud you for those things that you have done. And that's important to remember in a world that doesn't always honor faithfulness and sacrifice and perseverance and reliability and the love that you've you've shared with other people. God sees it, and he will applaud it. Secondly, God's promise of justice calls for us to pursue justice today. It calls for healthy introspection and possibly repentance. 
but also it calls for us to pursue justice today. Christian, we're to love justice as much as God loves it. And we are to be compelled by that connection to God's love for justice. We're compelled to seek justice in this world, which seek means to see that it's done, to, to defend it, defend those who do not have justice, and sometimes to fight for it. Paul writes in his second letter, Second uh, Corinthians seven eleven. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. That is when the, when the gospel infuses my heart and my soul and my mind, one of the outcomes is that I have a readiness to see that justice is done. Zechariah the prophet writes in Zechariah 7.9, this is what the Lord Almighty says, administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Isaiah 1.17, the prophet says, learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. And from the law in Deuteronomy 27.19, says, cursed is the man who withholds justice from the alien, the fatherless, or the widow. I mean, what Christian could possibly do that? To withhold justice. Here's what I've learned about myself, and maybe you can connect with it. I think that when it comes to um, pursuing justice in our world today, I've learned that personal comfort and privilege can insulate me from the injustice that's in the world. Maybe you can relate to that because you, you know, if you live in this valley, you live in a bubble of a bubble, people. That you, you can't really see and experience the injustice until you step out of the bubble. Our students who went to Romania, one of the common things that I've heard from them and the leaders is that, you know, there's a whole different thing, a whole different system that people are living under in different places in the world. If you've been out of country, you know that. If, if you've never experienced inner city or blight, you, you don't know what it's like to to grow up in a community where you don't have the opportunities that all of us have in this valley. Some of you are teachers and you've taught in Title I schools and you know what I'm talking about. It's just different. You know, the prophet Isaiah, um, he was challenging the nation of Israel at a time when they had become lax on justice, and it was likely because of their own privilege. In Isaiah 59, 4, he said, no one calls for justice. That's something that happens when, when we're insulated from the injustice. And, you know, one of the, I think one of the best stories to me and how we can become insulated by the good life is um, when King David uh, sinned with Bathsheba, uh, a child 
was the result. And he tried to cover it up, and he had Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, murdered. He had a um, general push him to the front of the line, and everybody else, was, everybody else withdraw. You should read that story. It's a fantastic story. And there's this prophet named Nathan who has the uncomfortable job of, of one, of, a, of seeing this injustice and then sensing that God wants him to approach the king. So just picture all the complexities that would go with that. And so what he does is he tells a story to David. Because he knows he can't just go into the king and say, hey man, you messed up, because he just gets his head cut off. So he tells him a story about a guy who had all these sheep, and he could have, you know, he could have anything he wanted, and yet he, cho he chooses to steal this sheep from this poor person. And David is incensed about this. Are you making the connection? He's the king. He's already got countless wives and con concubines, and he just has to have this one. So, like, Nathan tells him the story, and, and David's like, who is this person? We bring them before me, and I'll bring judgment. And Nathan says, him, says to him, you're the man. Not like, hey, you're the man. No, <laughs> you're the guy. And like, atypically, you know, unusual, it like it knocks him back. And he repents. And it was that simple story that enabled David to get out of his, his little bubble world to see how he had contributed, how he was part of, how he had responsibility for an injustice that had occurred. And you know, I think that that story could be some of the clearest commentary on some of the issues that we have faced in this country for a long time and are facing still today. And what I've noticed, now listen to me, Christian, I'm your pastor, I love you, I'm, I struggle just like you, I'm talking from my own life. But what I've noticed is like two camps. There's the, the harsh and unloving things that, we're, that Christian people are saying about some of the things that are the result of injustice. And then on, the, on, on other sides, you have people just being completely unreasonable, and then you have everybody using these issues as political pawns. And nobody's trying to solve the problem. Now, we disagree on how to solve the problem. I'm not smart enough to fix those problems, but what concerns me for people who name the name of Christ is how we can just be so discompassionate about the big problems in this world. I really appreciated, I, I don't agree with all of Dr. Dobson's positions, but I really appreciated his letter that he put out after visiting the border. And he saw the great tragedy going there with the families being separated. And he noted things like, nobody's solved this. It's been going on. Um, he noted the great compassion of the people that are involved in this. And, are bring, and giving their own money and buying things for kids and families. And they're, they're investing their own paycheck in resolving this problem. But it is a great injustice happening. 
in our time. Now again, I'm not telling you how to solve it. I don't know the answer. But as Christian people, that has to tug at our hearts. You see, justice can only be served by the people with power. Remember that. Because the people that injustice is being inflicted upon, if they had the power to undo it, they would. That's been true through all the ages. Who speaks for the unborn child? Who speaks for the woman in a country where she's mutilated as part of her growing up? Who speaks for the overwhelming black men who are in prison? See, when you have no power, you cannot seek justice. The only people who can are the people who have the power, who have the influence. Martin Luther King once said that it's a cruel jest to say to a man with no boots that he must pull himself up by his own bootstraps. Part of the process of us understanding the, un the injustice in the world is to realize that not everybody has the boots. And one of the things that I personally learned, and I grew up in inner city Miami, and yet, I would say that even, even there, I was in a bubble. And yet, one of the things, if, as I've grown older, I've gotten more educated, I, I don't know, it's like God's done a work in my heart, but I've become more and more aware that anybody who rises up has somebody. They have something. They have a mentor. They have someone that takes them under their wing. They have, they have a program. They have, they have a way of getting out. And that, those ways, whether they're individual or, or like a corporate or programmatic or systematic, they, they are designed for people who don't have the boots to pull themselves up. But that comes from a place, it begins from a place of compassion and acknowledgement that the world is unjust. Sometimes the power to overcome injustice is military. Sometimes it's legislative. Sometimes it's political. Sometimes it's financial. Sometimes it's educational. And always it's relational. We, we have complex issues in our world today. But as Christians, if you're, if you're here and you're a Christian, we have something precious. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes everything. And I, this is just like a little teaser. In the future, uh, in this fall, we're going we're gonna to do a series about what it means to be made whole by God, to be made whole by the gospel, and what that means for us in making the world whole through the gospel. But one of the things that we're going to do as a church together is we're going to look at a different way of helping. We're going to do a study called uh, When Helping Hurts because... One of the things that we've learned is a lot of our efforts to help others are not helping, they're hurting. 
So I'm going to just put this in your mind. October 6th, block out six Sundays, 5 p.m. We're going to have table groups here, and we're going to do like a big study together uh, with discussion about how our helping can hurt for six weeks. We're going to feed you. We're going to have a great time of meeting other people, but we really want to discover how we can help the world without hurting it. I know that, like, I intruded a little today. I'm not apologetic for that. I'm, I don't apologize. I wanted to challenge you. I've been challenged in the last few years in my thinking. Um, and yet I also want to assure you that we're not without hope. If, if you're aware and you're looking around and you're seeing that there's so much injustice in the world, this is my last thought. That's an opportunity. Because an unjust world is the perfect backdrop to display the gospel. All, all the stuff that I mentioned today, this is an opportunity for those of us who possess the grace of God in our lives. We know the good news. That is the perfect opportunity for us to display what life is like under the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, we have an advantage over Adam and Eve. They had no idea what the world would be like when they uh, dispensed with God's ways. We know. We've lived it. So we're ahead of the game. And our choice today is whether we want to continue to live in a world that is broken and unjust because we know what that's like. Oh, we want God to do a change in us and we want to be a part of the change. You know, Jesus said in his prayer, your kingdom come, God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven is the most just place in the entire universe. What if, what if we took a step back from whatever our positions are and we asked ourselves, is there injustice here? And if there is, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ speak to it? I think that that will be life-changing. And it would just prepare us for heaven. Because he has set a day when he will judge the world. That's a promise from God. You can take that to the bank. Let's pray.